Good evening, everyone. My name's Leo. Um, for those of you who don't know, and I'm a, I'm a member here. Um, we're going to continue our study tonight in uh, First and Second Samuel. Um, so I invite you to open up your Bible to verses uh, chapter six, verses sixteen through twenty-three. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michelle, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michelle, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself, today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michelle, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michelle, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is God's word. Thanks, Leo. Well, hello, everybody. Um, this is way better than speaking into the void in my living room, so it's really good to be worshiping with you all again. Uh, if you're new, I want to make sure I extend a welcome to you. If you don't know me, my name is Steve Reed. I'm the lead pastor here. And we are a relatively new church, so we only started about eight months ago, and four of those eight months have been in quarantine. And so uh, thanks for joining us for worship on our first Sunday back. It's really good to have you with us. And to reiterate what Luke said, regardless of where you stand spiritually, if you're a skeptical person, if you've been following Jesus for a long time, uh, we love Jesus Christ here. And so for the skeptic, we want this to be a place that's a warm environment for those to explore who Jesus is. And for those who follow Jesus, we want this to be a place where you can grow in making him your everything. And so welcome. And to those of you who are on the live stream with us, uh, it's, it's good to see you guys as well. Um, so yeah, as Leo mentioned, we are just continuing along in our series in 2 Samuel, looking at the life of David. And what is 2 Samuel ultimately about? I'm assuming, hopefully you guys have been doing worship with us. Can you, can you guys remember what 2 Samuel is about? So it's ultimately not about David, even though he's the main human character in 2 Samuel. What 2 Samuel is about is it's about a covenant God who covenants to save and remain faithful to his covenant people, even as we continue to mess up. A covenant God who promises to save and remain faithful to his covenant people, even as we continue to mess up. So that's what we see repeatedly throughout 2 Samuel. And here in this passage with David and Michael, what we see is two responses to that message, two responses to God's offering of unconditional love to, to his people. Or put another way, we see two responses to um, God's grace, God's offer of free grace. And so in this text, what we see is um, the most fundamental way to divide the human race isn't between the good and the bad people. It's not between the educated and the uneducated. It's not between the left and the right politically. Really, the most fundamental dividing line between people is those who've received God's offer of free grace and those who have rejected 
God's offer of free grace. And so that's what we see in this text. And so we're going to look at it under two headings. So first we'll see Michael's response to God's offer of grace. And then number two, we'll look at David's response to God's offer of grace. So verse number one, Michael, David's wife, his response to God's grace. And number two, David's response to God's grace. So first number one, uh, Michael's response. So uh, this is picking up right where we left off last week. And so the Ark of the Covenant, this represents God's presence with his people. And so David, with tens of thousands of people, has, have gone out to get the Ark. They're now bringing the Ark into Jerusalem, which is David's way of saying, I want God to be at the heart of who we are as a people. I don't want him to just be our co-pilot. I don't want him to be a helper on the side. I want his presence to be the thing that we rely on and we treasure. So he's bringing the ark into Jerusalem. And as we see, I mean, it is a party. And so there's, it's loud. There's dancing. The Macy's Day Parade has nothing on this. And so first we know this isn't a doxology parade, right? Because there's dancing during worship, right? We don't dance in worship. We could probably learn something from David dancing here. And, but David is dancing before the Lord with all his might, okay? So he's not holding anything back. He's doing the running man. He's got the electro shuffle going. He's got the, the Cuban shuffle, you know, down in the hopper. Um, so David is dancing before the Lord with all his might. Luke, I see you shaking your head. Um, and so he's ecstatic. He's happy. The people are happy. And then what he does is he starts mingling with all the common people. In verse 19, it says, and he and distribute among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. And so what David's doing here is he's handing out expensive delicacies to all the people. Okay, so they're happy. He's happy. There's one person, at least one person, who's not happy about this. Um, she's not impressed. And it's Michael, David's wife. Okay, and so what does it say in verse 16? It says, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looks out of the window and sees King David leaping and dancing and despises him in her heart. So the idea here is she's looking out of her window, like looking down on David. So there's multiple meanings there with her looking down on David. And then David in verse 20, he comes to bless his household and Michael runs out to meet David. And she says, how the king of Israel honored himself today. Okay, so that, that's sarcasm. That's sarcasm. Um, so, men, if you come home and your wife runs out the door and talks to you, oh, how you've honored yourself today, okay, that's, that's probably sarcastic. And this is more than Michael, you know, not being impressed with her husband's dancing, right? So we know a lot of wives aren't impressed with their husband's dancing. I'm not a great dancer. Kelsey is a way better dancer than I am. I'm grateful she still lets me dance at weddings. Um, it's, it's much more than that, okay? And so, what is Michael's issue? And I'll say this very briefly on the front end. So Michael ends up condemned in this passage. And, but I just want to say on the front end, in all of the commentaries I read, nobody recognized that Michael's actually had a pretty difficult life up until this point. So way earlier, she's described as actually loving David. Um, but then she's essentially like tossed around between husbands. Like she gets passed off to another guy. Now she's, she's taken back with David, and, there's, and David has other wives too. And so I just want to acknowledge here that we have to be careful not to judge her too harshly because she hasn't really had the greatest life. However, how God's inspired his word here is to show us, even though she's had a hard life, how she rejects God's grace, okay? Um, but I just want to make sure we're not painting her, you know, too broadly. So she runs out, and she says in verse 20, you know, how the king of Israel has honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers herself. 
So she's not getting at, like, David's trying to get sexual with the people here. That's not what she's saying. When she says you've uncovered yourself, so David took off his kingly robes, and he put on a linen ephod, which was a garment that a lot of the priests would wear. And so the idea here is David's identifying with the common people. And for Michael, she has a very particular view of how power should be kept and how power should be wielded. So for her, it's all about the image that you present. So by David taking off his kingly robe, she's essentially saying, like, how are people going to respect you as king if you're just identifying with them so closely? You know, we need to keep, we need to keep some distance there. So she's getting on him for that. You can also see where her scorn comes out, where she says, before the eyes of his servants, female servants, like the servants of your servants are who you're with. So for a snob, these are the lowest of the low individuals. And then it also says in verse 16, she despised David in in her heart. And so that word for despised there, it's the same word that was used to describe Goliath when he saw David and he despised, he scorned David. So this is language of uh, like a contemptuous attitude toward the things of the Lord. Okay, so that's, that's what Michael's getting at. She's essentially, what she cares about is her image and wielding power in a particular way, and so she, that's why she's upset with David. And how does David respond? He goes in verse 21, Michael, it was before the Lord who I was dancing for. So he's saying, I wasn't dancing for all the other people. I was dancing before the Lord because he made me king, not because I'm such an amazing guy, but just because of free grace, he made me king. And so that's why I'm so ecstatic. I have an audience of one. It's God himself. That's who I'm dancing in front of. And then in verse 23, it says, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. And so, so that, that's deliberately ambiguous there. Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the, the day of her death. We don't really know, okay, does she not have a child because she stayed away from David, David stayed away from her, or did God, you know, like supernaturally just condemn her, not allow her to carry a child, even if she was with David in that way? It's deliberately ambiguous, just pointing out overall she's not bearing fruit in the way that she should, and she does stand condemned at the end of the passage. And so what we have here is David's rejoicing, Michael stands condemned, and so we have to ask, like, why is Michael condemned, and why is David rejoicing? And the answer isn't because Michael's being disobedient here and David's being obedient. The contrast is not between someone who's disobedient and obedient. Uh, Because David, I mean, he's already screwed up many times and he's going to again. What the contrast is in this text is one person has received God's grace, David, and then the other person has rejected God's grace, Michael. And the way we know she's rejected God's grace is twofold. So one... Notice how she's described three times in this passage. She's described as Michael, the daughter of Saul. And so anytime you see something repeated over and over in a passage, that's important. And so what the author is communicating is by Michael being the daughter of Saul, she's in Saul's line, not just biologically, but spiritually. Okay, so King Saul, as we've seen, he rejected God over and over and over. Saul also cared more about his self-image, more about anything, than, more about anything else. And Michael's doing the same thing. But she doesn't care that the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, has come into Israel. She doesn't care. She's just worrying about, okay, you know, David, you gotta, like, you got to keep people esteeming us here. So that's one sign that she's rejecting God's grace by being emphasized that she's in the line of Saul, the daughter of Saul. But number two, we know that she's not condemned for disobedience by zooming out and looking at the larger context. Because who did have David's children that through David's line, ultimately came Jesus Christ. Who did God redirect David's line to through whom the Messiah would come? 
Did God, okay, Michael's being disobedient, I'm going to go find somebody obedient? No. If, if you've read 2 Samuel, God chooses Bathsheba. Somebody who's not royal like Michael, but a commoner. Uh, somebody who through David's sin gets caught up in adultery in a power dynamic that's very, not, very much not in her favor. It's Bathsheba that God chooses through whom Jesus Christ himself is going to come. And so what God's communicating by is, I don't work through those who think they're impressive. I work through, I work through those who know they're not and know their need for my grace. Because the beauty of the kingdom of Jesus and the beauty of the gospel, and you're paraphrasing Tim Keller a little bit, in any other religion, with the God that you worship, the thing that separates you from that God is your failure. But in the gospel of Jesus, the only thing that separates you from God is refusing to admit that you are a failure and you need God's grace. The only thing that separates you from the love of Christ is refusing that you need the love of Christ. And when you keep pushing and pushing and pushing against God's free, unconditional offer of grace, inevitably, now or ultimately, you end up like Michael, self-absorbed and ultimately cut off from God. So that's, that's the first thing we see is Michael rejecting grace here. So in contrast, what do we see? We see David receiving grace and how this changes him. Because here, so why... Why is David so exultant? Why does David not care about the A-list people and what they think of him? So let's go back to what he says. He says in verse 21, key verse, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. And so what David's getting at here is he's saying, I was a nobody. Like, within my own family, I was the least of all my brothers. I was just a shepherd boy tasked with nothing more than delivering cheese and crackers to the, to the army, you know, when Goliath came into attack. But God, for reasons I still do not understand, chose me and said, I am going to make you king of my people, and I'm going to continue to love you and stick by your side, even as, even as you continue to make a mess of things. And I still don't get it. <laughs> But he chose me, and so that's why I dance. So you can sum up this passage by saying David is dancing because he can't believe that God chose him. David's dancing because he can't believe God chose him. And if you know Jesus, you realize this, can be the, this, is, this is true for you as well. You can be exultant, you can dance because God chose you. Right, this is the entire message of the Bible. Left to our own devices, in our darkened minds, we worship things that are not God instead of the Creator who made us and loved us. We call evil good, we call good, good evil, and God in His grace says, I choose you. And I'm going to extend my mercy to you. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, who used to kill Christians and then was redeemed by Christ, says, Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who chose us before the foundation of the world. And predestined us to be adopted children with Jesus Christ. John chapter 6, Jesus himself says, No one can come to me unless the Father himself draws him. The point is, if you can even see your need for Jesus, it's because of God working in you. If you can see your need for God's grace, it's because God's chosen you. 
And this is the wonderful message of the Bible because what this ultimately means is God loved you first. God pursued you first. God came after you. God chose you. God chose to send the Son, Jesus. Jesus chose in love and joy to come die for you and rise for you in your place. When? When you were righteous? No, when you, when you were an enemy, like Romans 5 says. He came to give himself for you while you were at your worst so that he could give you his best. He didn't wait for you to be moral. He didn't wait for you to put yourself together. He didn't wait for you to resist temptation enough. He came first. He gave himself for you first. And so when we think about God's grace, we, we need to recalibrate like what comes to mind when we think about God saved me by grace. Because often what we think is, okay, yes, Jesus, God himself, came, lived, died, and rose from my sins. Absolutely true. But if that's all God's grace is, Jesus comes and does his work for us and then sits back and waits for us to figure it out, we're still going to be lost. The wonderful news of the gospel is God didn't leave us to our own devices, but opened our eyes to see our need for him. And getting a little bit more concrete, why this is such good news is because when you think about your relationship with Jesus, if it's more about you choosing Jesus than him choosing you? Like, what about the days where you're not faithful to Jesus? What about the days where your heart's cold toward Jesus? What about the days where you're not living as Jesus showed you how to live? What then? Is it up to your faith on a given day? A great way I recently discovered, like, how this played out, kind of accidentally, is, so Titus, who's been contributing a lot to this service, which I love, um, so Titus, our son, he is six months old, and we have this game now where he lays on his back, and when I approach him, he lies on his back, and he, he reaches up toward me with his arms. And so I come down, and I grab his hands, and I, and I go, okay, one, two, three, and his eyes get really big, and on three, I pull him up, and he stands up, and he's standing on the ground, he's so happy, like, looking around with these big eyes, this huge smile. Now, is Titus holding on to me? Yes, he is. But if I just let him rely on his strength and I go to pull him up, he's going to fall. Right? So why is Titus able to rise? Not because of his own strength, but because of the strength of his father. And it's the same way with you and Jesus. Your whole life with him is not about your commitment to him, but about his unconditional commitment to you. That when yours wavers, his is unwavering. And so as, as you think about God's love for you, it, it doesn't work like our love because there's none like him. There's none like our God. God isn't stingy. God isn't cautious with his love toward you. His love doesn't operate like ours. So we love other people until they betray us. Jesus loved you even through his betrayal while he was arrested. We love people until they forsake us. Jesus loved you even while he was forsaken by his friends and by God himself on the cross. Okay, when we see the, like the real ugliness in people come out, we what? We start to back away. When Jesus sees your ugliness, he moves toward you to fight alongside you against your sin. Our love toward other people has limits. Jesus loves you to the end. That's the love of Christ. Does that make a difference in your life? I hope so. I mean, look at David. Like, he's, he's got wings on his feet. Like, he, he can't even contain himself. He's so overjoyed that God chose him and continues to love him by grace. 
And so here he's obeying God. Now he's bringing the ark in according to all the rules, but he's not obeying because it's his burden, it's a joy. And he doesn't care when other people misunderstand him or when people look down on him. He's just so ecstatic that God has chosen him and continues to love him. And so the only application here, because I I want us to, um, in a way, not get so caught up in application that we just aren't changed and we live lives of joy because of everything that we've just heard through this passage. But as you think about applying this to your life, so what did David do? Six times uh, in this passage, we see the phrase before the Lord. Okay, so um, David was dancing before the Lord in verse 16. Okay, then when he's talking to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me. Over and over, six times in chapter 6, before the Lord is used. And so the idea is David's so thrilled by God choosing him that now God is not this like ethereal, invisible God that maybe exists, maybe, you know, matters to his life. God is the most real person in his entire life. And so everything he does is before the Lord. Not in a terrified way, but in a joyous way. And so the question for us, what I want to end with here is, just as you live your life, do you live your life before the Lord? Do you live your life before the Lord in private? Okay, so no one else is watching, do you live before the Lord? When you're at work, when you're out hanging out with friends, when you're at church, you know, when you're doing whatever you're doing, do you live before the person who's in, in front of you that you're engaging with, or do you live before the Lord, like freed from people's expectations of you, freed from people's misunderstandings of you. And one of the reasons why this matters so much isn't just for your own joy and your own holiness and your own growth in Christ, but it matters so much for the world. Because if the, I don't think this is an overstatement. The country's a mess right now. <laughs> and the country's a mess. Like it, it's, always, it's always been a mess, but now it's, I think it's just more evident that it is. And people are craving transcendence. People are craving an anchor, like something firm and eternal and true to hold to, even if they don't realize it. People are craving a compass that can orient them to where truth is. And our culture is offering people nothing more than, as one author put it, a transcendent attention to the self. Like, that's what our culture offers right now, just a complete fixation on the self. That's not enough. And so when it comes to Christianity, like the main question people are asking now isn't, is Christianity true? Because everything now is about, you know, story, experience, and 20, 30, 40 years ago, people were asking more questions like, how do you know you can trust the Bible? How do you know Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Some people still ask those questions, but right now, I think the main question at the bottom of people's hearts is, is the God of the Bible good? Like, is there a sweetness that comes from being in communion with him and following Jesus that surpasses anything else. Like, to, get, to give a couple examples, you know, so the Bible's sex, sex ethic that Jesus gives isn't popular today. But underneath a lot of people's objections to how Jesus says sex should be used is, is the question, if I follow Jesus here, will I forever be unloved and lonely? That's at the heart of a lot of people's objections and pain with regards to um, Jesus saying, you know, sex is between a man and a woman in marriage. Or the question that a lot of African Americans are asking in our nation right now is, does the God of the Bible actually care about my pain? Does he care about equality? Does he care about justice? 
That's what people want to know. Is there a sweetness that comes to following Jesus? Will he renew all things? Or is this just wishful thinking? And so for us, if we don't live lives and speak about the gospel as if it's not the best news that anybody can hear, then how is anybody anybody supposed to know that it's good? Okay, in private or public. As Pastor Ray Ortland put it, he asked, do our lives bear the sweet fruit consistent with the beauty of grace? Are we yielding an abundant harvest commensurate with the abundant grace God has invested in us? Like, what a good question. And so what I want for you, what I want for me is to rejoice anew in God choosing us. How do you know if God chose you? If you're trusting in Jesus, it's because God opened your eyes to him. Faith is always the result of God setting his eyes on you. And if you don't know Jesus, then hearing his words right now is God speaking to you and offering himself to you. And what his offer is, stop trusting in self, stop looking to your own self sufficiently, but trust in Jesus who did everything for you and follow him. Are we bearing sweet fruit That, that gives people a picture of the beautiful grace that we receive. It was before the Lord who chose me, and that's why I dance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that knowing you and being redeemed by you is not, not ultimately contingent on us choosing you, but you choosing us first and you loving us first. And so I, hope, I ask that you will help me and everyone in this church to find so much freedom there, Lord. Um, and as a result of seeing your incredible grace and goodness to grab hold of you, to see that your rules are good, to see that there is nothing better than to give our lives completely and utterly over to you, and help us to be a people um, that shows other people in this church and other people in the world what a good, good, gracious Father you are. Um, Thank you so much for what you've taught us today in your word. Be with us as we continue to worship, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.